Good morning. Today's scripture is found from 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 20. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 57, 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served him. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I, will no I, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they would be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the laws, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judea and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no, no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Bab Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the, and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judea. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered it on sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judea to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the king of Israel, and his prayer, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin and his faithlessness, and the sites on which he built high places and set them, set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. The word of the Lord.
with a passage like that, aren't you glad you got up this morning and came to church? Yikes. Uh, in 1994, God's grace struck Portage, Wisconsin. Now, I know what you're thinking. Where in the world is Portage, Wisconsin? It's a small town about 100 miles northeast of Milwaukee. It uh, has a population of about 10,000 people. It's not a popular destination. And, uh, in fact, the town's slogan is where the north begins. Uh, something that, for me, as a, Southern, a native Southern California, sort of just sh- sends chills up my spine. I don't want to be in a town where the north begins. Um, but in 1994, God's grace struck Portage. See, what Portage is probably most well-known for, if it's known for anything, is being the site for the Columbia Correctional Institute, an adult male maximum security prison. If you saw and were slightly obsessed for about three weeks with the 2015 documentary Making a Murderer on Netflix, uh, you'll remember um, one of the one of the convicted criminals, Brendan Dassey, uh, he's actually being held there at uh, Columbia Correctional Institution. But in 1994, it was another inmate who attracted the love of God, a convicted serial killer who admitted to the murders of 17 young men. I'm speaking, of course, about Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer Uh, who after his arrest, uh, the authorities obtained over 60 hours of recorded confessions in which Dahmer admitted to sexual assault, kidnapping, murder, necrophilia, and cannibalism, crimes the details of which would turn your stomach. And in 1994, Dahmer gave a a television interview in which sort of of in passing, he, he said that he was overwhelmed by this search for inner peace. He wanted inner peace. And a Christian woman in Virginia saw that interview on television. Her name was Mary Mott, and she sent several Bible studies to Jeffrey Dahmer. They corresponded, Mary and Jeffrey corresponded briefly, and Dahmer asked for more Bible studies, more more material, and she sent it to him. And shortly after, Mary contacted Roy Ratcliffe, a pastor who lived near the prison and asked him to visit Dahmer. Ratcliffe nervously agreed. He had never been in a prison in all his life. He had never visited a prisoner. And you can imagine that first face-to-face encounter with this, uh, with this man who had been convicted and tried and imprisoned for horrible crimes. And he visited Dahmer. He told him the gospel. He answered several of his questions, and for several weeks, he began to study the Bible with Jeffrey Dahmer. And Jeffrey Dahmer eventually confessed Jesus as Lord and was baptized in a whirlpool on the prison grounds. And within seven months, Dahmer was attacked and killed by another inmate. And now, as far as anyone knows, Jeffrey Dahmer is standing face to face with the king of the world, Jesus, celebrating his redemption and his renewal and the love of God. I have a confession. There's a part of me that cringes and grimaces at that reality. 
It's scandalous. Sure, I believe in grace. I believe the gospel. But there's part of me that wants to draw a line. There's part of me that wants to keep grace on a leash. There's part of me that wants to domesticate it. I mean, isn't there, isn't, think about this for a moment, isn't there evil that's too unspeakable, that's too vile, that's too horrendous to be forgiven and pardoned and eternally absolved? See, that's what this story in Chronicles is all about. It's about God's reckless love. The kind of reckless love that God has for unlovable people. It's his stubborn delight in the most undelightful people on the face of the, uh, on the, face of the planet. Even homicidal cannibals like Jeffrey Dahmer. Grace is at the center of this story. It's at the center of Christianity. And it has not only the power to renew your life, but it has the the power, the transforming power, the renewing power to transform and renew all things. That's the good news. So this morning what I want to do, I, I want to take a look at this, this passage, this story in Second, Second Chronicles. And I want to show you four things that grace does. Four thi- grace at work in the life of this king of Judah named Manasseh. So I want to look at four things this morning. Four things that grace does. First, grace seeks us in our lostness. Grace loves us in our sinfulness. Grace crowns us in our shamefulness. And grace frees us from our selfishness. Grace seeks us in our lostness. It loves us in our sinfulness. It crowns us in our shamefulness. And it frees us from our selfishness. So grace seeks us in our lostness. Look at verse 1 through 9, as, as Albert was reading that, it's just this, it's just a litany, a catalog of Manasseh's abject failure and evil and sin as a ruler of the nation of Judah. And it's pretty bad. Uh, in fact, the parallel account of this story in 2 Kings 21 basically indicates that because of Manasseh's failure, because of Manasseh's sin, because of his horrific acts of literally filling the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood, God utterly destroys the nation of Judah by handing it over to its political enemies. But I know what some of you may be thinking this morning. Uh, you may be thinking this. You're reading a list like this in Second Chronicles 33, and you're looking at some of these supposed atrocities, and you're thinking, Really? Uh, that's it. Okay, I'll give you. I'll give you the reality that offering your children as human sacrifice is vile and evil. Uh, but things. But everything else in this list. I mean, building high places, uh, seeking out fortune tellers, setting up religious idols. I mean, it. It honestly sounds uh, to me a lot like sort of religious peccadilloes. Like, is really God this impatient that things like this? would provoke and evoke his anger and wrath, like it says in verse 6? You tell me. Imagine raising a child from infancy. Your life, as some of you parents know, is oriented around seeing that child flourish 
and grow and be successful and educated and happy. You sacrifice your time, your energy, your finances, your schedule to make sure that that child succeeds. And what if during all that time, that child goes to school, graduates, enters into college, uh, exceeds it and, and is successful at college, enters into a, a lucrative profession and is wildly successful. And imagine that that child not once in their entire life says thank you or I love you or showed any appreciation for anything that you did. That's exactly what's happening to Manasseh. That's exactly how Manasseh is responding to God. God gave Manasseh one of the best kings of Judah, Hezekiah, as his father. He set Manasseh up for incredible success, incredible prosperity, incredible renewal, social renewal, religious renewal, societal renewal, cultural renewal. But instead, what does Manasseh do? He never thanks God. He never says, I love you, God. In fact, he does all of the things that God specifically prohibits kings of his people not to do. God says, don't hedge your bets by trusting other sources for help and hope and prosperity. Manasseh does that. He hedges his bets. He sets up idols to other gods. Um, In a world of competing allegiances, when kings would... Uh, position themselves strategically. God says, in a world of competing allegiances, be loyal to me, your creator and redeemer. Manasseh is not loyal. In a world where life is precious, where it bears the image of God, God tells the kings of Judah, don't degrade and manipulate or abuse people who are made in my image. And what does Manasseh do? He sacrifices his own children. God says, don't strive for ways to get reality to bend to your will. That's what all that language about um, seeking omens and fortune-telling and sorcery is all about. Manasseh was trying to get reality to bend to his will, not relinquish control and accept God's will for his life. See, Manasseh was tasked with leading Judah into spiritual and social renewal, but instead, what does it say? What does it say in verse 9? It says, that he led the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray. That's the language that Isaiah uh, uses elsewhere, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, to describe the human condition, our condition as fallen image bearers of God. We are all like sheep who go astray. Each of us goes our own way. See, the Bible often refers to us as sheep. It refers to the kings of Judah as, uh, as shepherds. And I'm guessing, um, at least for me, uh, many of you I know grew up in, in Southern California, we don't have a lot of experience with sheep. At least I don't. Um, if you do have experience with sheep, I'd love to talk with you after the service. That'd be fascinating. Um, but I'm guessing not many of us have experience with sheep. Do you know how sheep go astray? They don't just wake up one morning and, and say, ah, I'm sick of this shepherd. I'm out of here. I'm getting lost. No, this is what happens. Sheep get lost. I was researching this. Sheep get lost by nibbling. A little over here, a little over there, a little nibbling over here, and then a little nibbling over there, and pretty soon they look up and they've lost the flock. 
They've lost themselves and they've lost the shepherd. See, I think that's what a lot of us here are doing with our lives. We're nibbling in our career. We're nibbling in our addictions. We're nibbling in our boredom. We're nibbling in our distractions. We're nibbling in greed. We're nibbling in control. We're nibbling in people's approval. And we're all getting lost. But you know what's amazing? God seeks us in our lostness. That's what grace does. God seeks us in our lostness. See, right after this catalog in verses 1 through 9 of Manasseh's evil, we're told that God spoke to Manasseh. He spoke to Manasseh. It's essentially a word that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe a kind of prophetic rebuke, a warning, a stern reprimand of someone's lifestyle or a certain culture, uh, the, the, the direction and trajectory of a culture. But it tells you something about grace, doesn't it? It tells you that God isn't spiteful. It tells you that God isn't indifferent. It tells you that God isn't a condescending shepherd of his lost sheep. He's a concerned shepherd. He's a persistent shepherd. He's an involved shepherd. He's, in fact, as the Old Testament says, the good shepherd. See, God is the good shepherd who sent his son, Jesus, to seek and to save lost sheep. And that's what grace does. Grace seeks you out in your lostness. But it gets better. Grace loves you. Grace loves me in our sinfulness. I realize that's, that might offend some of you this morning. It's likely going to offend you. It does me, especially if you are particularly pious or put together or polite. See, grace doesn't just say that God tolerates sinners. Grace says God loves sinners. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus loves you? You. The real you. Not the person that you are trying to be. Not the person that you're pretending to be. Jesus loves you with all of your baggage, all of your sin, all of your shame, all of the secrets that nobody else in the world knows. Jesus loves you. That's amazing. But hold up. What's all this talk in verse 6 about God's anger? In the midst of all of Manasseh's failure and sin, doesn't God's anger, doesn't his wrath contradict exactly what I've been saying? Let me pause here for a moment and say this, that I think we need to get beyond, whether you're a follower of Jesus or or maybe a skeptic of Christianity, we need to get beyond this idea this language in the Bible of God's anger, of his wrath, of his discipline, is is embarrassing. We need to get beyond that idea. We sort of, at least I often do, I'm a little bit embarrassed by this kind of language, that God is a, a God of anger, that he's a God of wrath. It's sort of like the embarrassing uncle of the Bible. 
But God's anger is not an embarrassment, friends. Listen, God's anger is the hope of the universe. God's anger is his loving and righteous response to creatures that are literally destroying themselves and other people in God's good world. It's his loving response. You don't want to be in a world in which God is indifferent to evil and sin. That world would be hell on earth. There's a fascinating detail in this story that a couple of scholars actually point out. It's worth mentioning. It's found in verses 1 through 9. See, in this record of Manasseh's sin, uh, in verses 2 and 9, it tells us that Manasseh um, did more evil than the nations that existed and lived in the land prior to Israel taking possession of it. But it also says in the space of uh, of verses 1 through 9, particularly in verses 4 and 8, that God had entered into a particular kind of relationship with the nation of Judah. He had entered into a forever covenant. And what some scholars say, it's fascinating, that this reference, it points to two things simultaneously. It points first to the heinousness of Manasseh's sin, the heinousness of his crimes, that he would do things to damage and break and destroy the relationship that God had initiated with him. It points to the heinousness of of Manasseh's crimes, that he would never say thank you. He would never say I love you to a God who had initiated grace in his life. But more than that, it stresses the permanence, the unshakableness, the eternal reality of God's promise that in spite of human rebellion and sin, God would love. God would show grace. God would initiate mercy. Do you know that that is because of God's gracious rescue in His Son, Jesus? Because of God's gracious rescue in His Son, Jesus, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Do you know that God's desire to rescue you, God's desire to shower grace on you, is stronger than your desire to run your own life? St. Paul said it best. We've already said it in the service. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or as Eugene Peterson says, when it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. And not only that, it's the reality that God doesn't just love you, He likes you. God actually likes you. He delights in you. When you think of God this morning, what is the look that you picture on God's face? Is it one of anger? Is it one of quiet fuming? Is it one of disappointment? Grace says God loves you in your sinfulness. Grace seeks you in your lostness. It loves you in your sinfulness. And third, it crowns you in your shamefulness. What do I mean? Well, here's a place where grace 
parts ways with all other religion, all other spirituality. It's something that makes Christianity and grace distinct, unique, particular. And 2 Chronicles gives us a hint of that. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a tease. It's a hint of something that will uh, explode onto the scene in the New Testament. And it's in verse 13. Uh, Manasseh has been brought into captivity in Babylon. He's been exiled, which was one of the worst forms of punishment that Israel endured. It was to be cut off from relationship and fellowship with the living God, to be removed from their homeland, from all that they knew, all that they loved. And when Manasseh underwent that, he was humbled, and it says that he sought God's face. But look at what happens in verse 13. Look at what happens, uh, what God does. It says that God brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. What? You have got to be kidding me. You mean Manasseh, the guy who had completely just botched his rule and reign, who led the nation into destruction, who was labeled the worst king of Judah ever? That guy not only gets released from prison, but restored as king again. Given a seat of honor and dignity and worth and glory. Several months ago, I was um, potty training my son, Enoch. Um, It's sort of when people ask me if I've ever run a marathon or done something like the Ironman triathlon. I said, no, but I have potty trained my son, um, which has to count for something. And uh, one of the rewards I used to bribe my son was his own brand new um, Buzz Lightyear action figure, because every child needs a Buzz Lightyear action figure. Well, after days and weeks of working with him, he finally got his Buzz Lightyear. Uh, and l- several weeks after that, I found Buzz Lightyear in his, in his room with his arm completely broken off. And I was devastated. But being the good dad that I am, I bought him another one, uh, actually just for Christmas. And only to discover several days later that he had broken off the foot of that new Buzz Lightyear. Um, So you see where this is going. Well, that's it. At that point, no, you're not getting another Buzz Lightyear action figure. In fact, all your other toys are going in the closet until you can learn to play with them gently. And I'm not buying you anymore. Friends, let me tell you that that's not how grace operates. Grace is the re-granting of the full inheritance after a colossal screw up. It's the father in Jesus' parable of the two lost sons giving his flagrantly rebellious son his signet ring, his robe, his fattened calf, and a seat at the table of the party thrown in that son's honor. It's better than mercy. See, mercy would be not getting what you deserve, the cancellation of a debt. But grace is so much more. Grace is so much better. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's God crediting to your account 
a million dollars, infinite riches, infinite approval, infinite worth and glory and dignity and honor. Grace crowns us in our shame. How in the world is that possible? Friends, it's because Manasseh gives us just a little picture of another king who would come centuries later, who would experience the greatest exile that this world has ever seen. Not as a result of his sin, not as a result of his own rebellion, but he would experience the exile of being cut off from the presence of God. Jesus was the greatest king in the world. And he took off his crown. He was led away. He was beaten and scorned and spit at. And even worse than Manasseh experienced, he was nailed to a cross. Nails were driven into his hands and his feet, and he lay naked, bleeding out on a Roman execution device. He experienced the worst exile in the world. And in three days later, he was raised, vindicated, rewarded, brought into the glory and honor of his Father. And you know what that means for you and me? It means that you will never experience the exile that Jesus went through that that exile has now been credited to your account. That all of Jesus' perfection, all of His worth, all of His dignity, all of His honor, His crown, His eternal security, His eternal joy, His eternal freedom has been given to you as a free gift. In spite of your sin, in spite of your shame, in spite of all the secrets that you carry. That's good news. That's amazing grace. So grace seeks us in our lostness. It loves us in our sinfulness. It crowns us in our shamefulness. And it frees us from our selfishness. What do I mean? Look at Manasseh's life after his return from Babylon. He's a trophy of grace. Look at all that he accomplished. It sounds a little bit foreign to us. It doesn't sound that impressive. But look at, look at the, the difference in Manasseh's life. Instead of being consumed with himself, instead of trying to gain the approval of other nations and rulers and princes and other gods, he becomes, he becomes someone who's concerned with God, with God's reputation, with the well-being of his neighbors, with the well-being of the citizens of Jerusalem. How does grace operate in a person's life? We see a, a little picture of it here in Manasseh, but let me, let me suggest three things very briefly in closing. First, grace frees you from your own ego by making you humble. Pastor Eric, the other Pastor Eric, has been talking a lot about humility in this series on renewal. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Manasseh experiences that kind of humility. He is able to let go of his own ego. That's exactly what's happening when he offers his sons as human sacrifices. He's putting his own ego before the lives of his own family. He's sacrificing his children at the hands of his career, at the hand of his reputation, 
at the hand of his own prosperity. Grace frees you from your own ego by making you humble, by saying everything that God has given to me comes from him, not from my own success, not from my own smarts, not from my own hard work, not from my own supposed morality and righteousness. Grace frees you from your own ego by making you humble. Grace frees you also from your need for people's approval by showing you the face of God. That's exactly what happened to Manasseh. In Babylon, he was humbled and he sought the face of God. And what did he see in the face of God? He saw a God who saw him to the depths and yet loved him to the heavens. He saw a God who saw him at his absolute worst and yet did not turn his face away. Isn't that one of the, perhaps the most moving line of this whole passage, that when Manasseh entreated the favor of the Lord, God was moved. The heart of God was moved towards this Manasseh. See, when you see the face of God smiling at you in Jesus Christ, you won't need the the approval of anyone else. You won't need the validation of anyone else. You won't need anyone else to look at you and say, well done, because you'll know that you've already secured it in Jesus. Grace also frees you for the first time to love your neighbor. Grace frees you to love your neighbor. Manasseh's life was consumed with himself until he was humbled and saw the face of God. This weekend, tomorrow, we're celebrating the life of one of the the heroes of the Christian faith, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. King understood this. He understood that when grace strikes a person's life, they become someone who is concerned with the well-being of their neighbor. That's what you and I should experience as people who have tasted, if you have tasted God's grace, You should be concerned with the well-being of other people, people in your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, people in our community. We should be the kinds of people that are drawn towards issues of justice and compassion in our society. Because grace has freed us to be not consumed and absorbed with ourself, but consumed and absorbed with the well-being of our neighbors. That's exactly how Manasseh responded. He built a wall in Jerusalem. He set up places of religious renewal, places where people could go and worship. He sacrificed peace and thank offerings to God, celebrating the work of God among the people of God. I was reading uh, this week one of my favorite authors on grace, Robert Farrar Capone. And he says this, I want to I I talk about this for just a moment in closing. He says, more often than not, the church has expounded the offer of free grace as a bait-and-switch proposition, like the offer of a $99 airfare to Orlando, which turns out to mean that there are only three seats on the plane at that, at that bargain price, the rest being at the same old, you've got to have the wherewithal price of 275 The church gives, and worst of all, the world understands it to be giving, the clear impression that grace works only on the early birds, 
and eager beavers who cooperate with it. But that's dead wrong. Grace works without requiring anything on our part. It's not expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. Do you know how Manasseh was freed from exile, freed from captivity? God did not say, go out and earn this. Instead, Manasseh's heart was so transformed, so freed, so renewed by the love and grace of God that his life was just changed and transformed. And he became the king that God had called him to be. Grace is not some sort of bait and switch. God loves you and brings you in, and now it's your job to get busy. Grace says, you're loved, you're accepted, you're approved. Now go live in the light of that grace. There's a story from the American Civil War of a northerner who bought a young slave girl at a slave auction. And as they left the auction, the man turned to the girl and said, you're free. She turned to him in amazement and said, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything, the man said. And to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And even to go wherever I want to go? Yes, he laughed. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, then I will go with you. Have you tasted and seen the love, the freedom, the grace of the good shepherd Jesus? He came to seek you in your lostness. He came to love you in your sinfulness. He came to crown you in your shame and free you from your selfishness. Follow him into the freedom of the children of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God of grace. Thank you for bringing our chaos back into order. Thank you for making us orphans, your sons and daughters, the children that you smile upon. Thank you for the amazingness of your grace, that you would send Jesus, your son, to take our place and bear our cross. Thank you that for all that you've done for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.